Okay, so here we are again. Um, I'm Tom Abbott. I'm Valdi Bernson. And we're still sat in my kitchen. Um, mostly because there's a lot of stuff for sale from children's things in the study. And we can't get in there at the moment. <laughs> um, so, this is number four. Um, there are things that we're going to talk about in future editions of this. But we're still. I think we're, what we're doing with this this time is certainly we're still laying the groundwork. We're still trying to kind of build a foundation for a set of arguments or a set of discussions that I think certainly we, we are repeating ourselves a little bit to an extent, but I think we are trying to sort of move forward and, and, and figure out that there is, there's a block here, there's a block there, there's a block there, and at some point we can build a house. Also, anybody who's actually um, looked into teaching theory would know that it is incredibly important to repeat yourself. Yes, actually that's true. Yeah, repeating yourself is not a bad thing. Um, telling the same anecdote 15 times is never a bad thing. <laughs> well, I'm sorted then. Yeah, as long as it gets a laugh. So, um, for this one, for the next hour... Um, if you're going to stick with us, what you're going to hear us talking about is the title we have is What's Holding Us Back? Um, or Why We Haven't Got Jetpacks and Flying Cars Yet. Um, so this was, when we we talk about this podcast series as having an outline, we did, when we first proposed this, write and kind of exchange a Google Doc that had four or five suggestions for things we talk about. and And this was one of the ones that we felt was important to discuss in terms of the present not being the present that was advertised and the present not being the present that we expected to get, but also think about what genuinely what is holding us back, what is what is stopping us as an industry, as individual creators, as writers, as well, whoever we are, whoever we are, you are, what's stopping us moving forward? What's what are the things that's holding us back? Um, and then the reason that this kind of struck me as something that I want to talk about today is purely mercenary because I've been asked to write a thing for React, and React is a funding body that have been very generous in supporting me and Circumstance and a number of other people, and a lot of other people, because they're amazing, for the last four or five years. They're having their final event, um, that kind of, as their summary of what they've funded in a month or two's time, and I've been asked to write a piece, the title of which was, is rather, How to Unsettle the Future, Challenges and Disruption to Publishing and Print, and What We Can Do About It. Um, and the first thing that I did was have a cup of coffee, um, and then look at the brief and then look at whether I'm getting paid for it, which actually I am, which is kind of weird. Um, but think about what do I do within that title? What do I do in 600 words that I haven't done before? Or I do interestingly in a way that I haven't articulated before. And I think where I got to in an afternoon of kind of dwelling on this is... You can't unsettle the future. Um, well, it doesn't exist yet, for well, one. Well, this is it. It doesn't exist yet. And and that that kind of challenge, the title of the thing you've been asked to write about, is possibly trying to be clever. But also, for me, I think a useful way to start to write something that doesn't just rehash the same thing that I write every time, and that everybody writes every time, and we asked to write these things. Um, that, as you say, the future, the future doesn't exist yet. Um, we're living in a present... I mean, any any prediction we make about the future is actually built on what we have right now. And we make this point in the book that if you ask any science fiction writer, they will begrudgingly tell you that pretty much every view of the future is based on the present that we live in. Mm. I mean, it's it sort of our... The, the future's commentary on the present. Um, it doesn't exist as its own thing. It's It's a thing that we use to adjust and comment on and think about what's happening right now yeah um, so and it's sort of yeah it's the, the, the example in science fiction which is trotted out and it's absolutely true is that star trek is about the 1960s <laughs> star trek is not about star yeah. whatever it might be well it's, and deep space nine is about the 90s absolutely yeah that, and, and star trek as a as, as a franchise that kind of emerges becomes a really interesting way of looking at those things mm. and looking at those concerns because the first iteration of it is about there are there are subtexts in there about equal rights, or subtexts mm. about race relations, or subtexts about hippie idealism. Yeah, well, the, and, and the easy subtext, and there almost not subtexts about the Cold War, yeah. about who is who, and how the, who the Klingons represent, and who the Federation represents, and the Romulans, and the Romulans, and how all these kind of things map out. But it, as a result, it's a very easy example to say, look, science fiction is actually written about where you are, and, yeah, and, and what you're thinking about as a culture. And the same thing applies to, uh, like you said, well. 
all of these predictions, all of these um, futurisms and and uh, the in cottage industry around people whose whose business is is just basically to spin yarns and spill spin fairy tales about where things are going in the future. These are all just basically these are all just observations on and commentary on the present. They're yeah. they're talking about what's happening right now. Because they can't talk about what's happening in the future. It's just, it's physically it's impossible. A very, well, no, it's, I know it's not, I think it's physically impossible. But it's a very, very, very rare individual that has that kind of foresight and that kind of yeah. genuine view of what the future might be in any industry, in any creative field, in anything that says, okay, this is this is something completely different. And, and those are, those are for me, those are the Ian and Banks of yeah. um, science fiction writers. They're, they're, they're the very rare individuals that can pop. That can, pop, that can push as far as you want to go. They're the John Clutes of science fiction. They're, they're those people. There are almost always are people who's, who don't make their living making predictions. Absolutely. Because they're imagining and they're properly imagining out of their own environment. Um, and that's hard to do. I think that's, in terms of what these podcasts are about and these pieces of us commenting, I think we we obviously default to the present and you and I definitely default to the present in different ways and default to looking at what we have. But I thought in terms of addressing why we don't have what was predicted and why we don't have jetpacks and maybe it's worth maybe it's worth spending a little bit of time just unpicking that and saying I mean, the, the first <clears throat> the first and obvious thing is that a lot of the predictions were just really bad ideas. Sure. Um, like mm. the fact that we actually do have jetpacks. It's that like you can physically make a jetpack and it will work. Mm. It's just a really, really bad idea to give anybody a jetpack <clears throat> ever. True. It's, mm. you know, you're literally just strapping an explosive on your back and just wishing for the best. Yeah. And it's like, um, and it's like the same thing with flying cars. Is that these your average driver is a moron who can barely handle a car, a modern car. Imagine if they had to operate in three-dimensional space with essentially a bomb. You know, it's yeah. like that because that, that once you once you put make things fly, you need so much fuel. Um, so it doesn't matter what you're using to power it; it's going to be basically a huge. It's they're basically sitting on a missile, yeah. and the the Joe Blow random road rage idiot. Uh, putting them into a flying car it's just an in- incredibly bad idea mm. and a lot of these predictions are that, um, about uh, how th- how computers are supposed to behave or um, or these sort of inter- how they were supposed to integrate in our lives they're just bad ideas because they essentially would involve a basically would involve a police state but then again mm. that's partially where we where where we've gone anyway but just in a different way well, as in you know, instead yeah. of getting the value from the um constant and uh, constant surveillance like if you'd look at like these prediction videos that apple and microsoft mm. used to make in the past where they'd, they the 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 consumer themselves got got value from the the constant surveillance of the autonomous software agents that were around them that they knew and predicted what uh, they they knew, knew instead of us getting the value from the from the um omnipresent surveillance mm. it's just the state getting the value because they're, they're the only ones that, that get the data we don't get the data that's been collected about us sort of no. and the, the, there's a just on that note before we move on to publishing there's a really beautiful piece of design fiction that microsoft made about i think it must be four or five years ago of the view of a 50-year future Microsoft. Mm. Um, this this is how you will interact with your computers. This is how you interact with your devices, and it's a really compelling vision. It's a really compelling vision of someone. I think she's. It's a clearly a businesswoman who is travelling either to or from. I forget that he's travelling to or from an airport and and getting information about flights, information about the news, information about this. And the really interesting thing is, you watch this kind of two or three minute, beautifully made piece of science fiction, piece of design fiction. And the thing that you note, thing that you notice, if you're prompted to, if you're that kind of person at the end of it, is not once does she talk to a human being. Yeah. Everything is done through a machine interface. Everything is done through um, a UX. Yeah. In yeah. some way that, that weirdly, and I'm sure it's not intended as kind of some terrible, deliberate kind of dystopian future, but we. Microsoft's at least somebody in Microsoft's vision of the future is that you stop talking to each other. Anyway, that's it. But then, then again, that's pretty much the. That's that's actually the vision of the present for um, um, yeah. almost all of these Silicon Valley startups. They they all imagine a future where you deal with your servants through an app. Yeah. Um, mm. The entire Uber for X a, a sort of software industry is hinges around you creating a a labor class 
that you interact with solely through um, to, uh, through buttons on an app. Yeah. And um, you know, so it's sort of separating society so that you don't actually have to interact with people who aren't just exactly, uh, unless they're just exactly like you. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's sort of, um, that that's a vision, that the vision of the, of the, that they have for the prisoner. So it's no, no surprise that if they make a, a sort of a, um, a prediction around where things are in the future, that that's how they'd see things. And it's probably not that far off in that that class of people are going to isolate themselves with their money, with their assets, and uh, sort of segregate the everybody else away from them. I mean, it's probably, it might end up that way, don't know. Mm. Um, but one thing I, I, that crossed my mind about the original question about the... Um, um, first of all, you know what's holding us back, and why don't we have jetpacks? If we look at those those things, is that you can unpick those into basically two different strands. Mm-hmm. The first strand is the fact that is the idea of why haven't the predictions come true? Sure. And uh, and to address that, we need to talk about what sort of uh, uh, predictions we've seen in the past. And the other part of that is why are things broken? Because a lot of things are broken. Um, so I think I'd, I'd like to talk first about the the predictions, mm. uh, and the thing that I'm, uh, I find interesting is that we have had two two kinds of predictions. Um, if you look back to the dawn of computing, yeah, there are two kinds of predictions of how things went. So the first kind has been made by people who make things, who made mm. op- a, a true observations about what was possible and what was desirable. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily predictions of, of what w- would happen. But there were predictions of this is something that would be good and should happen, yeah. and didn't come to pass. And then there are the the sort of masturbatory uh, futuristic postulations that uh, are thrown out on a regular basis and have such a little relevance to uh, to reality that obviously they never came came true. Mm. The interesting predictions I I I find tragic to look at are the predictions made by Douglas Engelbert, mm. Alan Kay. And um, Ted Nelson. Ted Nelson. Mm. It's because they, if you read what well, is, if you look at the um, um, the work that Douglas Engelbert, he ran the the lab that created the they invented the mouse. Mm. They basically created the first computer workstation with a screen with a pointer. They created the first. Um, Networked collaborative yeah. work environment. They created the first office suite. They created uh, the first hypertext suite. They created the first uh, group where messaging, uh, sort of everything. You, you look at the mm. demo that they did in the nineteen sixties, and it's just like they have implemented everything that we have uh, 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 did later, but they did it better. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, mm. the interface is a lot more, is a lot more logical. And if you uh, uh, sort of um, the same thing that Alan Kay did with Small Talk is that if you look at this stuff that that the Xerox Park were doing with small talk in the late 70s and early 80s. A lot of it was just incredibly logical and and well designed, mm. and it never never came to pass. When uh, uh, the thing that happens when these people, Engelbert, uh, like Douglas, Allen, and Ted, um, have made statements and predictions, is that the most shallow parts of their ideas, the most facile features yeah. of of what they what they presented, those get picked up and implemented. But because there's no thought put into the larger context of what they were talking about, how the system worked, it, they, they, all of the functionality is left out. So we end up with with flat things on the screen mm. that we can't interact with. We end up with things that. Where half the stuff that looks like a button isn't actually a button, mm. or where there, where stuff that can't, uh, where it's uh, all everything is completely opaque and unusable, and it's yeah. randomly unusable. It's not even consistently, you know. Uh, it would be easier if you knew that consistently this bit will never work and this mm. bit works, but it's inconsistent. Yeah, and it's sort of it's just so we have a set of predictions that that never came to pass, which were. Practical. These were people that made things that worked. It 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 was such a sure a reasonable expectation to see say they they we've implemented these things. These will get more wider adoption because we've already made them, but they never mm. did. Um, so that it's it sort of I'm more interested in why that that, that transition never came to pass than in the idea of of 
complete hypotheticals, mm. um, like hypothetical statements and random mu- uh, uh, amusings, why those never came to pass. Because uh, it's obvious that, you know, if it hasn't been done, then 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 you, you can't know whether it's practical or not. But it's actually, they actually made these things. They did, that's true. And, and, and because this is still a podcast aimed at publishing and aimed at the book and aimed at that, then I think, for me at least, the answer is the same in both industries. The answer... And this may be me being incredibly naive and a bit glib and a bit kind of. It comes down to economics. It comes down to yeah. market forces and market factors. That what we got in terms of computing and as a, as you say, which is a kind of a, a pale echo and a shadow of what Engelbart did. And if you're interested in this, then just Google the mother of all demos and you'll see Doug Engelbart in 1968 demonstrating what you now. It not is so much mind for, blowing. It's mind blowing and it's older than me, <clears throat> which is kind of weird. Um, <laughs> Much older than Boulder. Um, <laughs> but you'll see that, and you'll see literally how little things have changed, how little our kind of relationship with technology has altered in 48 years. Um, and for me, the same things I think are possibly there's an equivalent in publishing in terms of what we have and what we mm. didn't have and what's been adopted. Is it's in terms of economics and computing, we've gone for. What we've got is a kind of mass market shut off solution. We've got a solution where we don't. I was, I'm, I'm that kind of rare, not rare generation. There's a lot of us. Um, my exposure to computing came through the X81 and then the Spectrum and the BBC Micro, um, yeah. and later the Commodore 64. And all of those had a programming language that you mm. were required to learn. Yes, you could completely use all of those as a consumer. You could use the Spectrum, you could use the Commodore as a games engine. Um, and that's really what certainly what a lot of us did, and we played games on them. But also, it, it invited you. There was something about the programming language. It invited you to learn how to program. And everybody, everybody of a certain age has gone into Boots and set a kind of a closed-loop running system on a ZX Spectrum and watched it kind of... Watched the shop assistants in 1984 running around trying to fix the whole thing and what you need to do is turn it off. I mean, it's... it's. I think one of the things that... Why are those platforms and uh, sort of like the uh, Apple II did this to, uh, to, uh, to some extent with BASIC, um, uh, they, they invited this level of experimentation from their mm. users because they were so obviously deficient yeah. because the the uh, it was so obviously missing in the uh, easy affordances to do things mm. so that by presenting this program language uh, sort of free with it built in yeah. it the, that the program language became the obvious affordance that people yeah. reached for because they, uh, it, it was the only thing there yeah. and it's one of those things that I've encountered with um, um, I don't know if you've encountered it in your teaching but I've encountered it through, Sort of, um, in uh, sort of when I, I've, I've uh, dealt with um, the younger generations, is that because they they grew up with basically prefabricated experiences with yep. that mm. are closed off and limited. Yes. Mm. Their computer skills are actually much worse yeah. than mine or my sister's yeah. um, because they, they, you know they've had a, uh, they've they've dealt with everything through iPhones and uh, and um, through iPads and mm. and they've never actually had to. They they uh, they've all all of their experiences is with devices that close off uh, the rough rough ground the rough terrain the un, the the un, the everything that isn't prefabricated yeah. is uh, just isn't accessible and it's a, so it's just basic problem solving skills if you if people when they run into uh, you know the, the amount of times for example that might um, in one of the things that my sister encounters on a regular basis in the workplace is that she works with two generations. She works with really uh, young kids, teen, mm-hmm. uh, like late teens, and she works with um, um, uh, women who are almost on the retirement age. Right. Uh, and those two actually have in common uh, sort of an inability to deal with problems in computing. <laughs> Ah, As in, okay. you know, it's like when something goes wrong, it's like, oh, oh my God, Jenny, Jenny, I, I, so what, what do I do now? Can you say uh, the computer doing, isn't doing what it's supposed to do? How do we fix it? So it's, uh, and it's, I have no idea what sort of how to deal with that. I mean, it, because it's it's obvious that that the computer industry isn't interested in, in they, they are interested in the IKEA experience. Yeah. They're not interested in the customise your IKEA furniture experience. No, they're not. And, and I think what's what gives me a kind of sense of optimism, um, I've I definitely had that experience teaching um, of students who in their 20s, t- t- late teens, early 20s, are are exposed to a, f- 
a filtered experience, a kind of a, a, mm. a innately barrier-driven experience. Actually, the one thing they do do that, that gives me an optimism is that they use that technology in a completely different way than we do. Cool. That their their relationships with each other, their relationships with their peers, with their with their teachers, with with any kind of is entirely mediated by digital technology. It's entirely, yeah. and it's and it is that it's the McLuhan thing about it's the air that you breathe and it's the water that you drink and it's completely natural and that. I find that quite inspiring is not the right word because it's not it's still a little alien to me because mm. I'm a few years older. I mean it's one thing I sort of that I've become acclimated to very quickly sort of in dealing with my relatives is the fact that people now have the expectations that expectation that their input is basically that there there's nothing you can't comment on that mm. you see a photo yep. that the expected expectation is that that your your in your feedback, your comment, your yeah. response to it, is not only desired but uh, not only allowed but desired. As in, if you post a post a, a, a an old photo on Facebook, mm. you don't do it there just like in a um, uh, you know if you show uh, show that same photo in a uh, uh, you know in a in a book in a yeah. in your photo yeah. album, you don't expect people to put post-it notes with their own remarks on it no, or don't. or or add to that yeah. uh, uh, to that photo album. But if you do it on on fa- uh, Facebook, it, it invites people's interaction, and and that is something that is has become that is. That is the one of the core strengths of digital media is that it invites people's responses. There, they are not always, but there's always the possibility of them being a part of the medium. And when you decide not to involve them, mm. that becomes um uh, that becomes a a that has a, it's a meaningful decision. Where, where, that, where, where it doesn't have the same meaning. They're deciding not to let people scribble in, this, mm-hmm. in the in the margins of your print book yeah. is is not meaningful because it's just it. You, first of all, you can't dictate what people do with their own copies. Absolutely. And um, it the uh, and second, it, you know, you dictating what you, what people do with your own copy is just rush reasonable. Mm-hmm. So nobody second guesses that. No. But if you decide in digital, say I don't want to allow people's comments on this, that is a decision that has meaning yeah. and adds as a dimension. So it, it change the uh, the the decision whether or not to involve people, um, change it change that and that. Um, Younger generations, they 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 this has become a native part of not younger, but people who are used to that medium, yeah. they they understand that meaning without having to think about it specifically. They regard that meaning as native. They regard that meaning mm. as absolutely that that idea that you can share content and that you're sharing your content actually is the content itself. Mm. I mean, um, I, and the reason why I said to people who think about this natively is that I want to avoid the idea that this is specific to a generation because no, it's not. They're, yeah, it's, they're, it's like my grandmother. She's she's got into Facebook. Mm. It's like she can't use a computer. No. Was it? Uh, well, what my, what we did was basically we bought her a an iPad Mini. Mm-hmm. We installed and uh, and created an account for her on Facebook. Log her into it, mm-hmm. put the app for Facebook prominently on the first screen, yeah. and it's the only thing she uses uses that thing yeah. for. Every day she presses that little icon, opens it up, goes through all of the photos and and the messages from her, and she likes everything. <laughs> she goes through and it's, if you sort of she she's been systematically going back. Through everybody's profiles, it's like she she went through my profile and she's going through every single photo I've uploaded ever since I started there and go like like it like next it. photo like it next photo like it yeah. next photo and it's like you know, she's, uh, it, she completely understands the purpose of Facebook, which is basically yes. it's it's systematizing and uh, systematizing gossip yes and it's sort of because she's a, a, a complete master of the art of gossip and. Showing photos and and uh, talking about photos, she's taken it to it like a duck to water. Completely, and that's that idea that um, she's adding her kind of her layer of usage. She's, mm. she, she, she's she's created she's putting a tiny mark on it, and that mark stays on it. I mean, I'm I'm not going to presuppose your grandmother is you know, but that that for a user that's kind of invisible that you don't necessarily you don't necessarily see that as part of it. But for the system, it's completely embedded in the value of the system. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we did with this is not a book was was make we took a decision early on that we would write the thing in public 
Yeah. As, as much as we could. You know, we're not, we weren't going to do a kind of real self thing and sit in a top <laughs> window with a typewriter and, and then, you know, that would be my Thursday and your Friday afternoon, whatever it might have been, and write the thing in that kind of public. But the, everything would be posted publicly, that we, we would make the thing as visible as we could while we were writing it. And I, I used to kind of send chapters out to students and stuff out and put things on LO where nobody would read it because nobody would read anything on LO. Um, <laughs> there is yeah, nobody on LO. There's nobody on LO at all. Um, I would put, I would tweet stuff. I would, I would make the writing process as visible as possible, partly to build an audience, partly so people were aware that mm. we were writing this thing, but also to test ideas out, to kind of see what had, what got feedback, what got likes, what got stuff retweeted and what, and that and what 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 got the response where people had an intense dislike to what Absolutely. you said, which what, was you know it happens occasionally, to, especially to what I say. But it's but it, that's just as valuable if, mm. if you're in in the writing process in trying to build that kind of racial audience. And this is something we talked about in the last podcast in terms of that terrible thing where you know, it's it's supposed that in terms of data you can now tell as a publisher when someone stops reading a book. Yeah, that. That, for me, is not valuable. Testing ideas out and testing little slivers of stuff out on an audience. As you say, seeing what, seeing the kind of reaction you get and seeing what doesn't get shared and seeing what people have a reaction to, either because that means you're on the right track and you want to carry on making the point, or because you're right, actually, that's not going too far, but that's not going to get a response. That's not kind of what you want to do. And it's, this is not about being a Daily Mail clickbait. I mean, it's not about no. kind of... It's not, even about, not even about the, the focus group experience, which no. people dismiss... It's it's about being a part of a community. It's being a part of a community and having a conversation that's visible. Um, mm. And that, for me, is one of the valuable things about an emerging generation. And it's not, as you say, it's not a generation, but an emerging audience who see that kind of relationship with content as being valuable, as, mm. seeing, as seeing it completely natural. And yes, it means that they don't program. And it means that they're not, they're, they're a generation, for me, Sorry, but we can use the word generation. There are a bunch of people out there who are, for me, increasingly artists who I talk to, who I teach, who use digital media as part of the air they breathe. And it's, I think it's a shame they don't program. It's a shame that, that is, yeah. that's a, it's a barrier that's kind of cut off in their earlier education and they don't do it. But it may be just the way their brain's wired as well, that they don't want to do that. They think visually, they think in a different way. But, um, but that, as, a, as an audience that we need to reach... Yeah. The publishing needs to reach and figure out how it gets there and how it gets that audience engaged and what not so much what it's doing because I don't, I don't think publishing is doing massive things wrong. I think it's not doing things it should be doing. Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> it, like you said. It's not about it's not about them or publishing doing the wrong thing. Although that there are you, you could if you want to be nitpicky, you could find mm. things out. You if you want to criticize, which I enjoy. Yes, it's part of my one of my hobbies. Criticize people. Yep. Mm-hmm. it's annoying, um, but. It's not that isn't actually the real problem. What you said, uh, like you said, and it, uh, it ties back into what the question was: is what what is holding us back? It is the, th- uh, it, it, the what's holding us back is not what people are doing; it's what they're not doing. Mm. It's it's all of the possibilities, all of the opportunities uh, that people aren't in, aren't yeah. taking, that aren't in, in, engaging in. They're they're leaving things on the table. Um, yeah. and there's this um, thing that if you talk about talk to anybody who's involved in the money side in publishing or money side in anything there's this obsession with not leaving money on the table whenever they do it di- and yeah. it's the thing that actually sort of even if you're a writer out there and you're ever ever negotiating your publishing contract just trust me that the people on the other side of the table they are they are have this as a mindset that they mm. are not interested in leaving any money on the table, so they're going to take everything they can, and you basically need to be a bit aggressive to keep that. Yeah, mm. um, and you know you need to take the mindset in contrast. But it's they, but they are leaving money on the table when it comes to um, how to use digital media because yeah. they aren't engaging in uh, using social media. They aren't uh, aren't they aren't using YouTube. They aren't they aren't. They aren't engaging with users and, and trying to sort of solve their problems, which is what we're talking about the last pod, uh, 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 last pod, uh, podcast. As in, they they they're they're leaving a gap where uh, that, that before we the the solutions to things, the guides, the how tos, manuals, um, introductions to hobbies, mm. that all was addressed through magazines and libraries and books before, and. 
they aren't engaging with with these audiences where those hobbies and those niche interests are taking place today. Mm-hmm. So they're leaving that up to the community. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and you know, the communities are are stepping up um, um, uh, in many ways wonderfully. I mean. It, any hobby that you you can think of, if you look online, mm. and there are forums there, and there are there are YouTube channel channels, and there's just so much really nice and interesting information out there. Uh, but there's so much value left on the table where um, you you could be having experts engage in mm. those communities and offering their specialized knowledge. And doing things more effectively in the, in the context that people are already operating in, mm. but you they aren't because they're thinking about the object. They're not thinking about the audience. They're thinking about the object. They're thinking mm. how can we solve this problem with print. They're not yeah. thinking how can we solve this problem. They're thinking how can we solve this problem with print. Because they they, and this is where we are going to speak mean about publishing for a second. But the, <laughs> the the focus on the book as a finished object, the book as the kind of the the high priest. The thing that that's all you aim for, mm. I think, for me, <clears throat> misses the opportunity of, as you say, engaging differently, of thinking about how you build an audience, and and that's not just about the book as an object. That's about your entire relationship with your supply chain, yeah. and your supply chain. Sorry, your supply chain being a writer and being someone who comes up with this stuff, and who is in theory, well, in theory, and in fact, the most valuable bit in the entire chain of it, but not using them and not thinking about how do you change. How do you give them a career and how do you give them a kind of longevity within that space? And how do you, almost in a way, and this is, I know it's still true in publishing, but how do you go back to the kind of the studio system? Yeah. Um, where, whereby, you know, in the 1920s and early 1930s, actors were were contracted to a studio for a set period and they would be given projects. There would be found projects. There would be films that were kind of, they were attached to. And yes, that has a whole kind of problem about vertical integration and the way that kind of mapped out in the early days of, Cinema. They were actually convicted for, um, you know, um, <clears throat> antitrust. Yeah, um, absolutely. For, yes. uh, yeah. Basically, exactly that same uh, system. Sort yeah. of, <laughs> but in terms of developing an industry mm. and developing an industry that's, and this is where maybe, yeah, I know we, we at the start of the book we say, you know, this is this is not about cinema without sound. It's not about kind of that's that's there is some truth in that, but that's an easy solution. It's an easy way to describe it, and it's much more nuanced than that. But actually, one of the positives about Hollywood in terms of the way that emerged, is it did allow a nurturing of talent and it did allow a nurturing mm. of writers. And it probably ended at the right point and it ended at the right time and it changed the whole game of it when studios were broken up and and different animals and different kind of objects emerged. But for a while, it allowed an industry to emerge in the same way as we need something that allows a different kind of publisher to emerge. Mm. We need something to happen. Mm. I mean, in, in a way, what we're seeing is we're seeing the consequences of a transition that took place before Amazon, yeah. where the sort of um, the MBA types mm. of maximizing profits and uh, uh, basically started taking over. It sort of it really started with the bit when the big book chains mm. um, um, took over uh, book retail. And the basically the uh, the uh, slowly but surely publishers have been dialing back their investment in um, writers and talent, mm. and they've been focusing their efforts on the the small percentage that delivers the highest return, which is our blockbusters. Yeah. And it's it's the same playbook that that film uh, that is movies and TV have uh, have gone through, and it's it's. It's obviously not. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it does deliver high returns, but it's also obviously more fragile because you only need for a need what uh, when uh, part of the reason why the sales um, of, of the of the publishing industry are down this year mm. is because they didn't have a major blockbuster, yeah. and it, that's the risk that that you have. The more you emphasize mm. um, the blo- uh, blockbusters as a business model the more you're hit by their absence in the years yeah. where you can't pull them off. Yeah. And it's I, I, it, it's really hard <laughs> to pull a large publisher away from that trajectory because that's, that's the area that they can go down that nobody else can compete with. Nobody, n- nobody else can compete with a large publisher in their effectiveness at delivering a million copies uh, yeah. of, of a book all over the world and selling it in the space of a week. Yeah. Um, so it 
it's logical for them to focus on the blockbuster because that's something they can do that nobody else can, can do. do. Yeah. And that's why the middle list, it doesn't interest them anymore because everybody can compete for the middle list. You can have people like Chris McVeigh um, with um, Fahrenheit uh, uh, Press or um, uh, how do you pronounce Michael Baxter's last name? Um, I would I get it wrong. I say, I say hello, Michael. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like Canaloco. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are sort of people who are, uh, you know, when you can have small one or three person teams putting together yeah. a publisher that can profitably uh, uh, churn out a myth, a myth list catalog yeah. of that doesn't rely on blockbusters, but but on to can sell on quality um, to a specific audience. That it becomes very undesirable for a large corporations to compete for that ground because mm. it you don't want to compete with a small army of 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 nimble teams. Sure, you mm. you want to compete where uh, it's it's the uh, the one of the things that if you look into what people are taught into in in uh, in their MBAs is that you want to compete where where uh, in areas that where where your competition is obviously disadvantaged. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that means blockbuster. So that means a certain level of risk. And that also means that you can't invest mm. in anything that is niche or small or new or, 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 or grow. Because if you're focusing on something that has to be delivered to millions, mm. you cannot start off by uh, by investing it, uh, by delivering it to a thousand and slowly grow, but that is what you need to grow the future for yeah. um, di- uh, for anything digital media related. You need to start off tiny, hmm. and you need to build from there because otherwise you're just going to fall over yourself. It's how you grow something that has the potential for change. It has hmm. potential to be something different. Is that you need? I mean, you know, the easy answer is you need to invest. You need to have a skunk works. You need to have almost a black ops team within every publisher yeah. who is trying to do stuff and who is not. And you know, as much as he's a very nice man, who is not, as Stephen Page once said, and I will continue to take him to test for this, who is not locked in a room to try and lose money for six months <laughs> because that's bullshit. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's an utterly arse about tip way of looking at things, and it just doesn't help, and it yeah. irritates me. But I write that phrase down four or five times a year in things and it irritates me every time I to write it that it was even said by somebody who's an executive and a publisher yeah. it's a stupid thing to say um, because it basically means that they have no idea what they're doing in terms of no. how, <clears throat> what it means to invest in building new things or building no. new things sustainably it's, it's I want the safe ground I want to be I want to be the safe ground and I don't want to, I mean my mm. responsibility is, is I don't want to take any risks and I don't want to take anything I don't want to I don't want to be in business in 15 years time and frankly I don't deserve to be in business <laughs> in 15 years time if that's my attitude Yeah. because it, it's irritating everything a publisher does we said this last time everything a publisher does is a risk it's a calculated risk and what Digital ought to be what building a future, what kind of trying to do something different should be is saying, actually, it's let's let's put some money in areas that we don't know what they're going to produce yet. And let's see what happens and let's absolutely control that, absolutely figure out how we do that and not not run a mock, but not start at the point where we're expecting these things to lose money. Yeah. And that being the only marker of success is whether they make money. Because they're not going to make money. They're not. A lot of these things are not, but they are going to build you a future. They're going to build you something that's more interesting and more varied and more, and just different than what you have at the moment. Um, one of the things that I find uh, an interesting experiment, an experiment that I've been following for um, um, lately, which I've, I've been really enjoying the tactics they've been using, is electrocomics. Yeah. Because it's, uh, in you know, ideally, that sort of experimentation would have come from um, one of the publishers. Yep. But it's basically it's it's a mixture of self-funded and and, and art funded, yeah. uh, 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 sort of government funded, and they're just trying new things. They're um, they uh, just today they released uh, a bunch of their code on uh, uh, open source on mm. uh, uh, on GitHub, um, both outlining sort of formats, and it's just like they're one of the things that that. Um, one of the reasons why um, the idea of predictions is so problematic is that predictions always look at they try to, it's like second guessing a randomly shot bullet. You yeah. fire into the air and you try and guess I mean, where the hell it, will it land. You don't know. It's, no. you've just, mm. it's fired. In the, what you want to do is you look at the assets that you have. Uh, when you, uh, instead of predicting over the future, you look at the assets that you have now and you look at what can I do right now. Yeah. And you build from there iteratively. You, instead of um, looking at where do I want to go, uh, is 
what you know what, uh, sort of where do I want to go in the distance you, mm. you say what's the next step I can take yeah. what can I fix in the short term which mm. which for me is a much better way of looking short term thinking kind of dominates I mean, it, it, it's the evolution of that kind of you're chasing a blockbuster so you think about short term you think about what's going to happen this year you have to make sure you have something out so what mm. you in a, you know my the easy the easy thing to kick Penguin with is 400,000 to Pepper Middleton to write a book about party planning <laughs> which is just you don't deserve to be in business. If yeah, that's it's, where it's kind of unfair to kick them on that because it's so easy. But it's, but they did it, and yeah. they did it, and they will carry on doing it. And everybody who gives a celebrity um, X hundred thousand pound to write their autobiography is do not look at the 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 uh, the upcoming title list for for my employer. Just make sure that you don't. Uh, there there will be bits there that annoy you. But the thing, okay, and this is this is the weird thing that someone told me in publishing about last year is that the title that sold the title they expected to sell yeah um and i will i will not do um an impression of the gentleman in question um but i believe it's to do with blowing the bloody doors off um <laughs> didn't sell yeah because he's not a good writer whoever ghost wrote that is not a good enough writer that's not interesting enough and the life is not interesting enough to sell the thing that sold was um was about a kind of a tragic story that was cut short yeah, it was it was somebody in the public, and I'm not going to go into it, somebody in the public eye who died, and it kind of quite unexpectedly in terms of the, the way the public perceives mm. them, and that's the book that sold. Yeah, so you, the money you give, you're still making bets, you're still taking risks and ridiculous risks mm. on this, and throwing money at these things, and still you're still in a position where you're not. That may be your money spend, that may be actually what keeps you in business, but it's still a ridiculous way to go about things. Mm. For me, it, it doesn't put money where you're going to build something. I mean, it's sort of, there's a, um, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of um, writing, theoretical studies and and, um, and conceptual work or surrounding entrepreneurship. Hmm. And one of the um, um, core, core concepts that people um, keep coming back to over there is the idea of affordable risk. Hmm. And one of the things that distinguishes uh, companies from um, entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurs distinguish between affordable risk and sort of like this wild, wild and random risk. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, while comp- uh, corporations put all risk under the same hat. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, um, like an entrepreneur will go and say, um, I'll take this risk. And because if even if it completely fails, I'll still be able to survive the loss of mm. the funds that I put into it. Yeah. So I can still afford to take that risk. And the, the thing that, that digital needs, it's just it needs people who serially and regularly take affordable risks. It's yeah. that, it, you know, it, rather than looking at uh, and uh, and saying uh, uh, sort of rather than looking at this, let's let's lose put someone in a in a in a room and lose money for six months. Yeah. Instead, what you look at is what sort of uh, just what would happen if we uh, if you uh, let, uh, let them to, uh, uh, do do some wild experience just next month, yeah. next four weeks. Yeah. Um, put put them and do do something for four weeks. Let them take a risk, see what happens, then adjust. Uh, and you do that iteration step by step instead of doing these massive big risk projects mm. that you extend over over months or years you do uh, do small affordable risks that you you put out there and you assess the feedback from them the response yeah. to them on a regular basis and you build you build up this thing which is absolutely in my mind it's absolutely how you'd establish and Nick Harkaway talks about this, how you'd establish a skunk works inside a publisher. Yeah. Is you give them you give them clear targets. You don't lock them in a room and assume they're gonna lose money. You say like you we need to produce fifteen things this year. We need a set yeah. of short experiments, of short things that we can put out there because one, we wanna be seen as experimental, we wanna be seen as trying to solve problems, not wallow in them. Yeah. Two, one of those things will work. 14 won't, but yeah. one of those things will work. But the other 14 will teach us things that if we didn't do them, we wouldn't know the answers. It's building up expertise and problem-solving skills. and doing it internally rather than... I mean, one of the other problems, I think, that... And this, when... I think when I published the Manifesto on Future book, the first comment I got... Um, I don't have a reliable network connection in the kitchen, so I can't check this. The first comment I got was from somebody who said that um, their critique was essentially... 
the problem with doing what I suggested in terms of kind of you know inventing the future and doing something different is you're going to have to hire somebody really expensive to do it. Yeah, not even hire. You have to uh, buy buy basically outside consultants and development. Um, yeah, and my, and my my answer to that one is well, why haven't you been doing that for the last yeah. ten years? Why haven't you been developing that expertise? Because what you the, the expertise what well, you've been developing is just in this little chain of producing ebooks. It's not doing. It's not allowing these people who are very very bright to do something very very bright and very very clever. Money. Well, the uh, the uh, comment is interesting because um, the person who made it is, uh, if I remember correctly, I think her name is Emma Barnes, and she uh, used to, she runs Snowbooks, but she yeah. has um, built up her own and with her company has built up a essentially uh, a web web uh, a web service software yeah. a web app that that is basically designed to run a publisher. It's basically right. sort of the mm. the they have a database of, of stuff that you need, the data you need to track when you're a mm-hmm. publisher and they, they put a web user interface over that and it's very clever. And and the thing is that well, well, she is... She's um, incredibly... I mean, she's aware, aware of what, what can be done mm. because she's done it herself. She's built up that expertise. But she's also aware of the fact that publishers will never do it. Yeah. There's a reason why she can sell yeah. her web service to other publishers is because she knows from experience that the publishing industry just they they have never done what you're proposing and they will yeah. never do it. Yeah. And which is kind of the reason why other industries are 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 diving into the gap and Absolutely. they're the ones that are 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 solving problems. They're they're the ones that are putting up. Um, engaging on uh, on YouTube and all of these platforms, they're building. You know, the publishing didn't build Wattpad. No, you know, it's, yeah, even if they uh, they should have, but they didn't, mm. and they will never. They will never do it. It, it was yeah, it's building. And, and as you say, the, the example that we started this little bit of conversation with, the, the comics publishing did not build electric comics. Yeah, really smart people who worked in comics built electric yeah. comics because they saw there's a gap. They saw there's an opportunity there to do something really really interesting. For frankly, as far as I understand, Nesta funding not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, then th- that that thing will not have had millions straight out. It we, the order is a the order magnitude is a great deal a great great deal less than oh, that. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of if if you'd uh, also I mean if if a publisher would have done the same thing, they would have mm-hmm. hired an incredibly expensive outside consultancy yeah. that would have charged them through the nose, and because they have mm-hmm. no expertise in actually judging what what they're buying, they would have ended up with something a lot buggier. And which would result in more mm. higher development costs, and the uh, it, literally they would have it would, uh, a publisher doing the same thing because they they don't know what they're doing would have cost them about ten times an order of magnitude more money. Absolutely, and electric comics for me feels like I mean I know I'm hammering this point. I'm trying not to hammer the table because it makes sense <laughs> in the microphone. This point it feels like a skunk works. I think you know mm. the the four or five pieces that are in or six pieces in the app. I don't like all of them. I think all of them have got something interesting to offer. Mm. Even to say, I'm. They're all trying different things as they're well. They're all trying different things. Some of them are very, very rooted in a traditional language of comics. Yeah. And doing something that feels like it's a very tiny baby step, and a baby step that Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, whoever, and everybody else have not taken. Mm. So it's valuable in that respect, and it's certainly valuable. But they're taking so many baby. But there are there are a couple of them that are really properly smart. Yeah. And properly trying to do a kind of. Um, reimagine the language of comics and reimagine what this thing could be digitally and how we can do something that is that is device native or platform native that you can't it's not simply it's not as has been somewhat from the case it's not animating a comics panel which is yeah. just the most appalling <laughs> thing in the world it's not motion comics which just makes me want to vomit yeah. I mean it's, it's sort of uh, sort of it's interesting that the other example of experimentation in comics that I can think of is Thrillbent. Yeah. But that's about Mark uh, Mark Wade and uh, I can't remember who he did it with but um the um the interesting thing there is that they they've done the same sort of thing they've they've done baby steps in mm. terms of like um they they they've played with the idea of of basically the panel layouts and how um Transitions between panel lay- uh, layouts uh, play out differently in, yep. in digital, uh, which is a small step, but it's still an interesting step because you need to, it, it. It very much is something you need yeah. to try, and it's sort of it's interesting to me in that that wasn't done for a publisher either. No, they they did that themselves, and they've basically been f- uh, self funding the entire thing until they launched their subscription platform recently mm. to pay for the thing. It, it, it's just. Literally, they they have uh, the, uh, these ideas of trying or uh, of trying experimentation just hasn't got any traction within the pub, uh, pub, 
publishers out of 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 um, digital, and the only time that that um, when the pub comics publishers have been doing the same sort of experimentation, they always go for the most facile and shallow things, like Marvel did with their. Where they literally, the only thing they did was add bloody sound effects, mm. really annoying bloody sound effects to their comics panels, which was like, it took serious comics and turned them into something out of the Batman TV series. It's a Biff Bang Pow. And, and, and the thing that, I don't know, I mean, Dave McKean is really good on this. Dave, and Dave, one of the things Dave pointed out years and years ago in an interview is that comics don't have sound. Mm. And... I remember having a conversation with him and and talking about From Hell, and I'm more Eddie Campbell's From Hell. For me, absolutely has sound. Yeah. That the rhythm of the panels, the rhythm of the way those panels operate, because it's it's structured as a lot of <clears throat> Alan stuff does. It's a very rigid grid. There's a nine panel grid on every page, and when and what that does is set up a kind of rhythmic reading. Yeah. And yes, it's not sound because it's not orchestral. It doesn't have a kind of soundtrack running, but it absolutely has a has a thing has a thing in that in the way you read it about a rhythm of reading that when he breaks it, when Alan and Eddie break it and do a panel that hits a full page or a panel that breaks across, we pay attention because our reading is being changed in that little mm. order of things. And yeah, the the idea that you suddenly have sound effects to make comics digital or interactive I mean, is just I mean, adding horrific. actual sound to that would ruin the effect. <clears throat> completely ruin the effect. And you're right. It's it's it's. It's crappier than anyway. Yes. Um, so it's sort of like uh, I mean, it, the question goes back to is that what's holding us back? I mean, what's preventing publishers from doing this? Why are are why or most of the interesting experiments? Why are they taking place outside outside of, yeah. of the of the proper core publishers? And why uh, sort of and why when they do happen within publishers, do they seem to almost be accidental? Like so, they slip through the cracks. Yeah. Um, it, and it's for me there are, there are yeah. two answers the, the easy one is economics and I know that that unpacks in a much more complicated way mm. as we just suggested that the economics of being one of the big four and a half five mean that you're chasing blockbusters every year and that your economic model is for me completely fucked as a result and <laughs> yeah. you're completely screwed because you're never going to do anything interesting or if you do as you say it's by accident Though on the other hand um, you've got an industry that in my experience and I appreciate it's a small experience any attempt to do anything interesting is modelled on books. Is modelled on you're not going to shift more than a thousand copies of this, so you're not going to have yeah. any. And for me, the my answer to that one, which of course gains an attraction, is um, as far as I know, the last time I even asked anybody at um, Inkle about Frankenstein sales figures were Frankenstein shifted twenty thousand copies as a purely piece of. And I, my yeah. my issue with anything like that. With the greatest of respect to everybody who does that, to so Dave Morris, to John, to, to people who work there, is that you're dealing with a you're kind of dealing with a safe ground because you deal with adaptation, and mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's not hard. It's really hard to do well, and the, that app is a very clever treatment of yeah. a, a kind of a, an interactive branching narrative problem, and it's a really smart thing, and I love what they do. But it is your that eighty days you're dealing with kind of known territory, but that. If you can shift 20,000 copies of that in three and a half, four months, which I think was a point I asked somebody, and that's yeah. then that proves that proves the issue. That proves you, you can get an audience for it because your audience maybe doesn't come from traditional publishing. It doesn't come from book buyers. It comes from a crossover audience. The other thing that publishers could do is actually properly invest and consider mid-term, long-term investment as a thing that is worth putting money into. The, yeah. The, the thing about being one of... <clears throat> Sorry, I got a bit of a cough and cold today. The thing about being one of the big four or five is that you are, yes, you're dealing with a massive organization, you're dealing with a big thing, but the, the advantage you've got of that, and I don't mean to suggest this is about hiding cost, <laughs> is that you can absorb some of those costs and you can do interesting, cool stuff. In um, theory. In theory, I don't, I, I hate to think, and it, it, it worries me how much fighting Dan Franklin must have had to do to get Black Crown made. Yeah. Um, for something that's an incredibly smart idea and a beautifully rich idea. Um, and we can say this on this podcast because Dan isn't here, but and I, I still think it's a it's a crying shame that wasn't supported better by his employers. Yeah. That Random House didn't see... But then yeah, the, the problem with publishers today is that they, they, they really... They do not, like we've mentioned before, they do not market things. They they can support things that have traction already. But it shouldn't be about, for me, something like that, it shouldn't be about 
it should be about marketing it, but the marketing department in a publisher is geared toward books, oh, yeah. and it's a PR department. It's a, it's it's about pushing something out already into existing channels, and it's about taking advantage of Radio Two's book club, or Oprah's book club, or any kind of avenue you've got. It's not about doing anything terribly clever. Usually, yeah. yes, there are obviously exceptions, and there are definitely exceptions. But and the digital stuff, I think, needs the clever bit. It needs actually. I almost wouldn't want a marketing department near it <laughs> because they haven't got a clue. They, have, yeah. they don't. They don't know how to deal with the unknown. They don't know how to, mar- how to market the unknown. They don't, they don't have a market because they're interested in selling and PR generation about an existing product. Yeah. Um, give someone something completely new. And what you're actually... what you Okay, what you want is advocates. You don't want a marketing department. You want, yeah. you want the early adopters. You want the people who are going to be kind of your super users who are going to break what you do, but will talk about the good stuff. Because if you iterate it in public yeah. and you iterate it with them and you give them a voice... One of the things that surprised us about This Is Not A Book is, and it surprised me, was one, the reaction was kind of overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive, which was really nice. Oh, but well, the, I expected more anger. <laughs> yeah, I, I can anticipate more anger. But, but the, we started to get people who, who would do copy editing. Yeah, I was uh, sort of like people posting like issues of yeah. um, of uh, you know the, this uh, the, this is broken here and the, uh, on this uh, this browser and this needs to be fixed. And it's the generosity of spirit because yeah. I think we allowed them in and we said this is this is running on a GitHub repository. It's it's unfinished, but we want your thoughts and feedback. And we've had some we've had some emails from people who are generously critical. Oh, yeah. about the way we've written it or things that they feel are missing in it or the problem with there being two voices that. That we don't we don't acknowledge who wrote which chapter yeah. because we both wrote both all the chapters, but there are certainly some that are more me and some that are more. And all these you. all these points have been have been they're almost uniform uh, uniformly excellent and sort yeah. of just really good observations of of things that we could improve or. Um, but it's a generosity of spirit. Yeah. It's a generosity of spirit in kind of in that community of people that we're trying to reach. That we, the, the the people we want. Maybe if we want to talk to more people than just that initial. And the figure you gave me is 600 people in the first week and a bit have accessed mm. the site. And anyway, yeah. But we need more, we're interested in more than that. But those people are properly generous and properly interested. And that's been really impressive. For me, that that gives a truth to the early adopters notion. Those are yeah. people you want. They're people who are interested enough in what you're saying and what you're doing. And in terms of us, it's, it's a thing that we wrote about writing for digital. But that any product that you do, if you're a publisher, anything, any any kind of push you make into that sphere, you need. <clears throat> you're not. It's not about marketing it and trying to shift a thousand or twenty thousand copies. It's about getting a community interested in what you're doing, so that they will, they will come with you on the next fifteen you do. I mean, basically, people are willing and able to give and engage with what you do if you let them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of it's just it's it's a shame if you due to organization or processes you lock out mm. all of these advocates, all of these communities that would otherwise be invested in what you do. Yeah. And you're just you're just losing so much. You're just losing so many assets <coughs> and so mm. uh, so much support that you'd otherwise uh, would otherwise sort of keep you going through the hard part, the hard Completely. bits. Completely. And and so much opportunity for for, an, for developing an audience that doesn't exist already. Mm. Because it's like us not, it's, yes, the experiments have been done so far and that use existing content, that use kind of adaptation, are really valuable because they start to push territory, they start things out. But for me, mm. the really interesting thing is when, when people do something that is new, yeah. that is properly new. And this is why, I mean, I, mean, I think the, the first of these podcasts has a question to favour about where is EMPS Arcadia? And the answer is, of course, now it, it came out. And it's really, <laughs> and it's really interesting. It's yeah. a really... I'm about two thirds of the way through the digital version, and I want to go and read the print edition as well and see how it compares. Yeah, and it's properly interesting because it's a piece of new writing. Yeah, well, um, it's different, and it's different. And and I, I I don't have a strong opinion on the digital side because I've not finished it, and I do want to think see how it compares to the print and see how the two things work in concert or not. But it, it's I'm glad it's out there, and yeah. I'm glad that even though it took three and a half four years to do and has gone through various iterations. I'm glad it's there, and I'm glad it's been written, and I'm glad it's been published, because we need more of that. We need more mm. bits of experimentation that are crazy, insane, but take us somewhere and move yeah, forward. Yeah, but maybe not experimentation that takes you three or four years to complete. Maybe not. No, no, you're right. You, we want the stuff that takes five weeks to complete. 
Yeah. It's a short turnaround because there's a little bit of experimentation out there and it's just done because, yes. Basically, you need to lay a foundation of, of small things before you start building the, uh, the big things. You do. And uh, yeah. sort of, uh, and so you need to do a lot of small experiments sort of to lay down like a layer of dirt that you can then, mm. uh, that, that's stable enough <clears> for you to, bu- uh, to build on. Because it's otherwise, you just don't have the knowledge, you don't have the expertise, you don't have the uh, connection with the audience that you uh, uh, sort of, um, un- unless you actually do small things serially in public. And the danger is if you, if you don't do those things, if you, if you go into one big thing each time, it may work, but the problem is that you're probably starting from scratch every time you do it yeah. and starting with a new thing. Unless. It's a pre- it's yeah. a it's a big project gamble. Is that if yeah. you do big releases or, or that are rarely, each one has to start from scratch, and you you you're not you're not building anything long term. No. It's just it's like a firework that you shoot, that you that you uh, that you blow up once a year. And you hope it blows up because frankly, <laughs> some of these well, some of these things don't blow up. Some of these are not going to the, the the conceit or the novelty is not going to sustain itself over a long piece. That it's, yeah. it's going to fall down, or the work is too structurally complex or that the it's just not interesting enough to kind of marry it through and we until we start making experiments we don't we honestly don't know what those things are going to be so basically experiment more please experiment more I and mean, and <clears throat> you know small experiments serially yeah in public yeah you know build an audience get feedback and just participate yeah. it both uh, both participate in other people's experiments and 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 in my participation in yours it would be a much more interesting place if people did mm. Anyhow, I think that that pretty much is it. I think that's pretty much it. So, if you've listened this far, um, good on you. Good on you. Going to something more interesting. Uh, (laughs) But thank you very much, and we will both see you next time. Indeed.